Okay, well, good morning and welcome here to uh, Aerosmith Baptist Church today. Um, uh, I'm Sean Rust. I'm one of the leadership team here at the church, maybe for those that don't know me. And uh, welcome to those of you that are joining us online also. And uh, just before I, I pray, I just want to pass on that um, on behalf of the leadership team that we are uh, we're excited and uh, blessed to have uh, Pastor Roger coming to join us to have a sort of experienced guy to help lead us through this transition process because uh, lots of churches are going through these kinds of things in these days and so we're very fortunate to have someone like that to come and help us out for the next few months. So um, we're obviously going to be sad to see the bot sets go but we're also um, excited about the process and the next part of the life of our church too. So um, please join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time here today that we can gather freely like this without uh, much fear of persecution. Uh, we know that around the world that other people are not able to do this nearly as easily. I also know, Lord, that uh, in these days our hearts and minds are busy. Um, the devil's at work in the lives of, of your people. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds and our souls would be quieted, not just now, but tomorrow and Wednesday and next week, and that we would hang on to you and, and seek you and see you first to guide us through uh, something that's not a surprise to you at all. Uh, it feels like that to us, but of course you know where we're going, and uh, that gives us great assurance. I thank you, God, for all these things and ask them in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so, um, we'll get to Joshua 9 in a bit. Um, that's where we're headed today. Um, there certainly is an abundance of deceptive things in our world today. Uh, so let's get fake news out of the way first. There's also modern technology called deep fake which uses um, CGI or voice technology to create copies of real images and voices uh, so effectively that we almost cannot see the difference between fiction and reality. Uh, the recent Jungle Book and Lion King remakes were also almost impossible to tell apart from reality. Uh, since 2016, we have lived in what people have called a post-truth world where emotions rather than facts have driven the narrative. And this includes weird terms like alternate facts, whatever that is. There have been countless stories of con men, such as seen in the movie Catch Me If You Can. A few years back, I read a biography about an, an illiterate yet successful high school social studies teacher. Going way back, there's the famous deception entailed in the Trojan horse. Nursery rhymes are also full of stories of deception, such as Hansel and Gretel or Little Red Riding Hood, designed to teach terrified children discernment. I guess there can also be positive reasons for deceptions, uh, sometimes known as little white lies. When I was about eight or nine, and in Cubs, uh, we went on a weekend camp out somewhere in the woods near Regina. Around dinner time, the leaders informed us that just before dark, we were going to have a snipe 
hunt. Now, none of us knew what a snipe was, but we were excited to learn that those elusive birds were captured by two groups of hunters. One group, armed with pots and pans and other noise-making devices, would run through the woods, scaring the snipe out of their hiding spots. The other group, armed with garbage bags and flashlights, would catch the poor birds in mid-flight once they were airborne. The thought of this hunt was very exciting and resulted in about an hour of good hard running through the bushes and up and down the hills, such as they were. Sadly, no snipe were captured the first night, nor the second night, despite the chance to reevaluate re and change tactics. But we were sure tired after the hunt. It was not until many years later that I realized the wisdom of the deliberate lie told to the 20 or so of us that were there. Yes, I know the Bible says not to lie, but it was pretty smart to tire out a bunch of nine-year-olds before bedtime. Uh, since it's Communion Sunday, it's also worth mentioning that historically, billions of people have been and are deceived about how to get to heaven or have a relationship with God himself. Many people think that being good or doing good is the pathway to eternity. It's not that they're necessarily deliberately deceived. Some people just don't know. However, for those that have heard the gospel, it's clear. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Don't be deceived. There's only one way to eternity with God. And it starts and ends with the cross of Christ. The exclusivity of that claim actually provides incredible freedom since it's not up to us. Let's now look briefly at where we've been so far. In Joshua 1-6, we saw the end of a long period of wandering in the wilderness. Joshua led the people toward the uncrossable Jordan, and with the help of God and some unlikely people like Rahab, they crossed over along with the ark, and established themselves in the promised land. They remembered where they came from, had their first Passover, and felt successful about their mission. In chapter 6, the very famous fall of Jericho happened, and they seemed to have the world by the tail. In chapter 7, inconceivably, some of them sinned against the Lord already, and they were defeated at Ai. We saw how internal sin in the body affects everyone. Last week, in chapter 8, we saw the fall of Ai, thanks to Joshua and his people returning to take God's direction and achieving victory. They also renewed their covenant with God, which seems to be a necessary and sometimes almost daily process for us too. They rededicated themselves to worshiping God and putting his word in front of their community of believers. Today, as we study chapter 9, 
We're going to see how thinly their grasp of God and his place in their lives could be. But we're no different. Think of how easily we get distracted or afraid or doubtful or deceived. It's a razor-thin line that we walk day to day. Not that our salvation is necessarily in jeopardy because of our temporary unbelief, but if we assume that our unbelief is not a sign that we need to recommit, then we're prideful rather than humble, and the cycle goes on. There's a small sweet spot that we need to stay in, and I pray that we all do that at least most of the time. So if you want to go ahead now and turn, if you haven't already done so, turn to Joshua chapter 9. I'll give you a second to do that. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read it in pieces as we go. So Joshua 9 begins with, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowlands and all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. We're talking here about the area west of Jericho towards the Mediterranean Sea, and the Gibeonites were also the Hivites that are mentioned there, and just to have in our minds, they're also Gentiles, which will be important later. When they, when they heard of this, that is referring to the fall of Ai that we saw in chapter 8, as well as the reestablishing of God's people in the promised land and their renewed dedication to the Lord. Once the Gibeonites saw the unity and focus in God's people, they planned their attack. This exact thing is happening today. As the culture changes around us, and the more that we try to stay on target as individuals or as a group, the more that we'll be attacked. We should not be surprised, as Jesus said, that we would be persecuted. If he was vilified, we should not expect any different. Verse 3 continues by saying, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. Now this city was about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and these Gibeonite people seemed to be different than the others, in that for some reason the destruction of Jericho and Ai prompts them to act against God's people in that place and time. There are also some special interest groups today that seem to be extra militant to Christians. We have to be alert. Next in verse 4, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Cunning that they, the Gibeonites, show is in the fact that they used old news, that of the Israelites wandering for a long time, since it would have had time to reach them. They also purposefully deceive and infiltrate into God's people. They make it look as though they've been traveling for a long time, 
and that they are desperate upon arrival. It seems that too often people use the fact that we're supposed to be nice to our disadvantage. Now what I mean by that is as believers we're definitely supposed to be welcoming and generous and loving and kind and all those things. But we're also supposed to be wise and turn to God for guidance. Nowhere, sorry, nowhere are we instructed to act foolishly nor gullibly. In these days, we must be careful and discerning, as there are traps for us everywhere. If you've seen the way cancel culture is operating in our world, one misspoken word and it's trouble. Also, for example, the famous evangelist Billy Graham traveled with a male assistant that always entered his hotel room first so that Graham could never be caught in a hotel room with a woman that was not his wife. And apparently people tried to set him up that way all the time. In verse 6, they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. We saw that camp in chapter 4, and Gilgal, as we learned, is a place of memory. Uh, it is also the, the same place where John the Baptist would much later baptize Jesus himself. A covenant is a serious thing in God's world. And we have to ask ourselves why or how the Israelites could be so easily fooled. As Christians, we must be cautious too. Not fearful, but cautious. As Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We must fear the Lord, but we must also ask for his wisdom to navigate the world that seems to hate his people more and more. In verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us then how can we make a covenant with you? Joshua and his men show some suspicion here with the question, but then they foolishly proceed without asking God's direction. It is very easy for us to do exactly the same thing day to day. And as Pastor Leland has told us, I think it's 9,786 times, we should not be hasty. Thank you. Then in verse 8, they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? The Gibeonites continue with their attempt to deceive by saying they are their servants, and what they are really is wolves in sheep's clothing. And Joshua shows some restraint with his questions. Now we're somewhat cautious too as a church when we insist that someone be among us for a while before they can become a member or be baptized or as today to take communion, uh, there's something healthy about establishing some authentic common ground and relationship before entering into a covenant. In verse 9 they said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Keshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. The Gibeonites lie 
and say they're from far away. We remember before, it's only about 10 miles. They are not servants either. However, perhaps their hatred of the Lord drew them because of his name. It is true that the name of the Lord, especially Jesus, is the only, quote, God's name that has blasphemy laws about it. No other name is used as a swear either. No one yells out Buddha or Krishna or Allah when they smash their thumb with a hammer. In Isaiah 45, 23, we see that to God, every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And in Philippians 2, 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is something about this God of Joshua's that draws the Gibeonites towards their own desire to deceive. And at the same time, saying you are a Christ follower today is not really that acceptable. There's something in that name, as we all know. Verse 11 continues with, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Um, the only thing worth mentioning here is that there's a repetition of verses 1 to 6, which is grammatically typical of Hebrew text, which I'll talk about again in a minute. In verse 12, they continue with, Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. As the passage repeats earlier words, we see that Joshua is not consulting God in the process. The lies of the Gibeonites are appealing, as he is without guidance. It is so easy to get distracted and off course, only a little bit over time, we're way off course. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. There's a turning point here, as the Israelites take some things from the Gibeonites, and did not ask counsel from the Lord. How many times do we have to see this happen before we automatically make turning to God our response? The narrator of the book of Joshua here also explicitly criticizes the foolishness of the Israelites, which is also kind of unusual. In verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is dangerous and, and even foolish because he is making peace with them under false pretenses due to his negligence. Today, we are going to be forced to declare where we stand as the culture squeezes in around us. Christianity in North America is going to have a real cost, unlike anything before in our lifetime. Here, in other parts of the world, they've been paying the price for many years. We haven't really had to, but those days are upon us.
verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath, Jerem. Now the, the repetition of, of the number three, or things in threes, is used many times in scripture. And as I mentioned before, it's a grammatical device. And it's used in lots of other places too. And Shakespeare famously used the repetition of things in threes. Uh, sometimes it's to reference the past, the present, and the future. Sometimes it's to, in literature, to reference the, the Trinity. And in Hebrew literature, it's to get attention or emphasis, uh, meaning that in Hebrew text, they did not have an exclamation point to use for punctuation. So they would say something three times, which would indicate that basically God was saying it to them very directly. It's almost time to go back to school, right? Um, so they learned how close they'd actually lived to the Gibeonites, and they're starting to realize what's going on, finally. Verse 18 continues, But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Now we've been warned in many places, including Psalm 15.4, that God honors those who fear the Lord. And Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. We're not supposed to break oaths to God. Also, this is the first time of Joshua's people grumbling to Joshua, unlike the previous constant grumbling to Moses. Um, as we know, People have unmet expectations, which causes murmuring and bickering and dissension and grumbling. We need to trust God and follow our appointed godly leaders. And it's hard to believe that the Israelites actually wanted more blood after the very recent destruction of Ai. In verse 19, all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. As we know, but signals a direction change. The leaders direct the people, which is not always easy. They are to honor their covenant, despite the deception. They know that God allowed them to be deceived. And they also know that their, meaning the Israelites, mercy and grace would be more effective to show to their enemies than a fist. God will judge the Gibeonites instead. Jesus instructed us to turn the other cheek. These commands apply to people, especially that do not know the Lord. The Gibeonites are not God's people, so they get better treatment than do the Israelites. But Joshua and his people are following God's lead. We need to remember that too. Non-believers do not know what we know, so we cannot expect them to act the same way. Believers, on the other hand, should know better and are held to a higher, often more stringent standard. 
verse 21, the leader said to them, let them live. They became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. The leaders let them live, but also forced them into menial jobs, doing hard work without modern tools. The Gibeonites had to find water in the desert, and in the end, Israel forced the Gibeonites to become servants, which is how they deceived them in the first place. Sometimes God's word and plans do have a wonderful poetic justice. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Joshua resumes command, makes them accountable, and curses them. The tasks they are assigned are also connected to the sacrificial system related to God. So in a way, the Gibeonites are in the kind of inner circle, which could be construed as a potential blessing to them if they respond. He keeps them close and accountable. We need to operate like that also. There are no lone wolf Christians. In verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. The Gibeonites do respond to Joshua's mercy and God's mercy because they realize that they are not going to be destroyed for their deception. Verse 25 continues, And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. The Gibeonites' hearts changed. We're not sure exactly how much at this point. They are shown grace and mercy, which is how we should treat non-believers also. That does not mean anything goes, but they are given a chance in this case. Then Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. As I said, the Gibeonites are held close to the altar of God, so they are not completely off the hook. The Gibeonites themselves did not plan this, was the outcome they wanted probably. It's, as I mentioned earlier, also another example of God including Gentile people in his grand plan. Finally, this passage has several big ideas that bear repeating. Number one is don't be fooled. Two, consult the Lord. Three, keep your word. Four, confront the lie. Some amazing things will happen if we kind of, you know, allow, I say that tongue-in-cheek, allow God to lead. Obviously, he's leading. Uh, if we look forward, in 1 Kings 3, uh, we see King Solomon sacrificing and worshiping at Gibeon. In 1 Chronicles 12.4, we see that Ishmaiah of Gibeon is listed as one of King David's mighty men of valor. 
God used the place of Gibeon and the people of Gibeon in ways that Joshua would never have foreseen. We do need to be wise and discerning in our dealings because we know that our enemy is the ultimate deceiver, as we read in John 8.44. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This world that we live in might be a complete mess, and, and it is. And we might never figure out all of the deceptions and lies and chaos around us. But those in Christ do have the only true way out. Uh, the writer Tim Keller said that Christianity is not the opiate of the masses, but it's more like the smelling salts. Even better, in John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let us believe that truth, rather than the deception and the confusion all around us. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for your word that's able to timelessly guide us through our days and through our lives and towards you in eternity. And as we uh, come to your table now, I pray that the remembrance and symbolism of taking communion will remind us of the sacrifice that you paid yourself to remove our sin bondage from ourselves and to, live, to, to deliver us back home to you. I thank you, God, for this time, and I pray you continue to, uh, to bless us and that our time may be glorifying to you as we continue. In Jesus' name.